The story begins when Paul is an enemy of Jesus. And the story concludes that he is a servant of Jesus. And because we're jumping into the middle of the book of Acts, we don't have the benefit of saying, well, last week we covered this and the week before we covered that. Let me just put you in Paul's headspace. In a moment, I'm going to read, read this verse and we'll pick up the story. Here's where Paul's mind is at in this moment. At this point, before he's converted, before he becomes a Christian, he is still a man who loved God deeply. He believed in God. He was not an atheist. He was not agnostic. He was the son of a Pharisee, a Pharisee himself. He was a Jew. He was a rising star in the Jewish, in the Jewish religious community. He loved God deeply, but he was completely opposed to the gospel. He was a man who, he believed he was already on his way to heaven because of his good and moral living. I wonder if you know anyone like that. They've not converted to Christianity. They don't have a personal relationship with Jesus, but they believe they're on, they don't believe they need salvation. They don't believe they need to belong to a church family. They don't believe that they need to repent, that they need to submit, that they need to turn over control. They believe their, their resume is pretty good. They're a good and moral person, and they're already on their way to heaven. That's what Paul believed at this point in the story. I will use the names Paul and Saul interchangeably. His Hebrew name was Saul. His Greek name was Paul. And at one point in the story, Luke starts using Paul instead of Saul. He doesn't tell us why. He just changes the story. I don't think there's huge significance. Some people trace it back to God renamed him. That's not that's not what really happened here. That's not in the story. He, uh, it was probably just advantageous for him for his future ministry to go by his Roman name rather than his Hebrew name because of the, the, the groups that he was walking with. I'll use the names interchangeably. Same guy, Saul Paul. Okay. He was a man who saw nothing at all wrong with his life the way he was living it at the beginning of Acts chapter 9. Now, I've heard a lot of your stories about when you made a decision to put your faith in Jesus. And what's common in most of your stories is you come to a place where you say, I knew the way that I was living was wrong. I knew I was wrong. I knew I wasn't perfect. I did feel guilty because of sin. I was aware that despite my best efforts, I constantly fell short of of a moral standard that God has for us and that no matter how hard I tried, I couldn't be perfect. Paul sees nothing he needed to repent for. He thinks he knows exactly where he stands with God. He saw no need for forgiveness. He was a man who had already heard a present, at least one presentation, maybe more. We know he heard at least one entire presentation of the gospel from a man named Stephen. Paul heard the whole thing. It's not even like he didn't know what the gospel was all about. It's not like he hadn't heard about Jesus. It's not like he hadn't heard about sin. It's not like he hadn't heard about crucifixion and resurrection and repentance. He had heard it all. He just thought it was ridiculous. He was a man who Christians ran away from and hid. No no Christian wanted to engage with him. That's the man we see in the beginning of Acts. And all I want you to see is this. Here is probably the most unlikely human being alive at that time to ever become a Christian. 
And what I love about the gospel and what I love about the book of Acts, what I love about the New Testament, it constantly introduces us to people who are unlikely candidates to ever get saved. We see that they had radical encounters with God and they were dramatically changing. It gives me hope because there's people in my life that I'd probably put in that category. How about you? Do you know somebody in your life you're believing, you're praying for, but you're just like, they are the most unlikely person to ever become a Christian. They are so set in their ways. They're so opposed to what it means to follow Jesus. They've got theological objections or moral objections. They don't want to change their life. Or worse yet, they've heard it all and don't think they need to do anything different in order to be accepted by God. That's the exact place Paul was at in the beginning of chapter 9. He is on his way. He's on a six-day hike, 160 miles long, from the city of Jerusalem to the city of Damascus. You might be thinking, why? Well, the Bible supplies an answer to that. Let me read it to you, Acts chapter 9. Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath. The best way to translate that phrase is breathing in and breathing out threats. It's like it was his air. He was breathing in threats, breathing out threats. And this next verse is, this next phrase is chilling. And he was eager to kill the Lord's followers. Can you let that settle in for a second? I don't know if you've ever known anybody who you could describe. This person is eager to kill another human being. These are the people that we want locked up. These are the people that cause big-time tragedy and catastrophe. He was a rabbi who was eager to kill Christians. How does a rabbi become that type of a person? So he went to the high priest in Jerusalem. He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way that he found there. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. Here's what you need to understand about this. Paul was based in Jerusalem. That's where his influence was. We'll talk more about this in a moment. He was a rising star in the Jewish community, probably probably the most influential, but definitely the youngest expert in Old Testament and in Jewish law. He had the Old Testament memorized word for word. I'll tell you how I know that later. But he only had influence in Jerusalem. He didn't have any influence in Damascus. In Jerusalem, pretty much what he said went. He had great power. He had great influence. He, in fact, had just got done issuing a serious crackdown on Christians in the city of Jerusalem. They had gone door-to-door dragging men and women out of their homes, many of them beaten or imprisoned or worse, causing thousands upon thousands of Christians who were Jews ethnically but Christians in their faith to pack up their things and flee the city for fear of their life. He had just finished doing that. And yet that wasn't enough. He hears that 160 miles north, Jews were settling there and starting to show up in the synagogues there. But he doesn't have any influence in Damascus. His, his badge, his influence didn't travel with him to Damascus. That was their problem. That was their synagogue's problem. So he goes to the high priest and says, I need a letter of endorsement because you're the head honcho. And if you give me written permission, I can take this letter to Damascus and I can show them that you give me permission in their city and go into their synagogues and find people who have fled here as refugees and put them in chains and drag them home. He wants to, he, you know, he wants to put them in chains even better. He just wants them killed. So that's why the Bible contains that detail. He was bent on tracking down, tracking down the refugees and bringing them back. Let's keep reading. 
As he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I want you to know that's Lord with a lowercase l. Now, we get tripped up because Lord with a capital L means Jesus, the Lord. And he uses Lord, and sometimes we think, oh, he already knew who he was talking to. That's not the best indication. In our modern language, the best translation would be Paul said, who are you, sir? He didn't know who it was at first. That's why he asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now, get up and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. The men with Saul stood speechless, for they heard the sound of someone's voice, but saw no one. Saul picked himself up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind. So his companions led him by the hand to Damascus. He remained there blind for three days and did not eat or drink. Now there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord spoke to him in a vision saying, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he replied, capital L. He knows the voice. He knows the person he's speaking to. The Lord said, go over to Straight Street, which incidentally still exists today, to the house of Judas. When you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He's praying to me right now. I've shown him a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so he can see again. But Lord, exclaimed Ananias, I've heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to believers in Jerusalem. And he is authorized by the leading priest to arrest everyone who calls upon your name. Word had gotten there in advance that this man was coming. He had heard. And it's kind of like saying, really, you want me to sit down with the leader of the ISIS caliphate and witness to him about Jesus? This guy's going around beheading Christians. I'm not walking into that. So when you contextualize it in the modern day, it doesn't look like this is a weak man. This is a guy who's like, God, are you sure? You know, I know this dude. I know his story. I know his track record. I'm not, I'm not so sure this seems wise, but the Lord said, go for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings as well as to the people of Israel. And I will show him how much he must, this is chilling. What's his first lesson as a Christian? How much I must suffer. And you read two verses later and it already starts. Here's a guy who gets saved and he's everybody's enemy. The church doesn't want anything to do with him. The lost don't want anything to do with him. Everybody's trying to kill him. He tries to get involved in a church and the leaders won't let him in because they don't trust him. He has to be smuggled out in a compost bucket over the side of a wall. He lives his life on the run constantly. How much he must suffer for his name's sake. So Ananias went and found Saul. What a great sentence. So Ananias went. He had objections. He went to the Lord. He was honest about them. God says, no, you can trust me on this. And he says, well, it might cost me my life if I'm wrong, but I trust God. I'm going to obey him. And he went. He lays hands on him and says, brother Saul, calls him brother. The Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Instantly, something like scales fell from his eyes. He regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized. Afterward, he ate some food and regained his strength. And so now there's this transformation. 
He has a miracle. He's filled with the spirit. God shows him a vision and confirms it. He can see. He gets his eyes back. He has a good meal. He gets baptized. Very next verse, I didn't give this, give this to them. Immediately he begins preaching about Jesus. And then they decided to kill him. Started suffering right away. Well, let's go back into this chapter. Just spent a few minutes here. How do you get from being a rabbi to being a killer? Like how... How does someone go about that transformation? It's an interesting, interesting story about this guy. How, how do you really know? How do you truly know if you're a Christian? Because here's the reality. Paul thought for sure he knew what God was like. He knew who God was. He knew the Bible. He thought he knew exactly who Jesus was and who Jesus wasn't. He thought he stood right with God, and then God knocks him down where he thought he stood. And he has this experience. You know, and I ask a couple questions. Is it possible for somebody here today to have some of the same characteristics of Saul in the beginning of chapter 9? You're very religious. You study your Bible. You go to church. You've got a good Christian resume. You follow the rules. You give, you serve, you love people, you do nice things for them. You think you know exactly who God is. You see nothing in your life that needs to be adjusted or corrected. Is it possible for a person to think that they know God when in fact they don't? Is it possible for a person to think they are right with God and in fact they are not? The answer of both Jesus and the life of Paul is yes. It is possible for a man or a woman or a boy or a girl to think you're right with God when in reality you are not. To desperately need forgiveness and you see nothing you need to repent from. To desperately need to exchange religion for relationship when your religion is your whole resume. Jesus said it this way. Many people will come to me on judgment day and say, Lord, Lord, look at our resume. Look at all we've done. Look at what we said. Look at everything that we did. Here's our resume. And God will say, but you never knew me. But God, look at everything I did. You know, I was at church every week. I came at 9 and 11, and I bagged groceries in between. I had this app on my phone that reminded me every day I spent 15 minutes with you, whether I wanted to or not. Look at my resume, and God says, you don't want me to go over that resume. But look at all the good things. God says, no, there's a whole lot of other things on your resume. When you get to judgment day, you're going to present God with one of two resumes, yours or Jesus's. I don't know about you. I want to go with Jesus's resume. I want to be able to come before the Lord with Jesus introducing me. And he says, Father, Phil is in me and I am. Here is my life as his resume. Because there's this radical new union that forms when you're in Christ. Jesus is in us, we're in him, in him so much so that when God looks at me, he sees his son and treats me as if I had done everything Jesus did. That's what I want. But is it possible for you to be living through life thinking you're right with God because of, every, because of your little resume when in fact you're not? The answer is yes. How do you know then if you're really, truly a Christian? 
Bible gives us an answer. The big idea is that conversion, 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 conversion through the power of Jesus is the single differentiator of all authentic disciples. Only people converted by Jesus get into heaven. And without conversion by Jesus, you don't get into heaven. Every disciple of Jesus who's really a disciple of Jesus has been converted by the power of the gospel through the power of Jesus Christ. That's what happened in Paul's encounter. I know you're thinking, but man, Pastor, you just read Paul's encounter. I didn't have that. I didn't have a, a brilliant sun blind my eyes. I didn't fall down and, 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 and have to be led by the hand. I didn't have all these bells and whistles. No, but there's a few things that Paul experienced that are authentic to all of our conversions. He had three encounters. He had a God encounter, a truth encounter, and a love encounter. And we see them all in the questions asked between God and Paul. The first thing he happened was he had a God encounter. Saul asked, who are you, Lord? In Acts 9.5. You're converted by encountering and believing in the real God of the Bible. Up to this point, Paul thinks he knows exactly what God was like and what he wasn't like. Bible actually tells us a good bit about his backstory. He was born to a Pharisee. His dad was a Pharisee. He raised Saul to be a Pharisee. And probably when Saul was about the age of 13, he was living in Tarsus, but his parents believed in investing in their child's education. And so they sent him to, they sent him to Jerusalem to go to religious training school. And he trained under the very best. And some of you can identify with that. You want the best education for your kids. You want the best education for your grandkids. And you invest in them. Well, they saw this and saw they saw his mind and they saw his potential and his, his passion for Judaic law and for the scriptures. So they sent him at the age of 13 to study under the preeminent professor of the time, a man by the name of Gamaliel. And he went to the very toughest rabbinical training school and what we know about this school is that for years and years and years in their teenage years the students in that school studied morning afternoon and evening to memorize the entire old testament word for word when they went to class it wasn't lecture it was debate spirited open debate firing back and forth between professor and class digging in on all of the different intricate aspects of the judaic law so that if you somehow survived this school and you passed, you graduated as absolute, an absolute authority on all of the Old Testament scripture and on Judaic law. And part of Paul's resume was that part of his teenage years, he immersed himself in the scriptures and he memorized the entire Old Testament. He was a master of the Jewish law. This is a man who knew everything the scriptures said about God. He was confident in his education. He thought he knew exactly what God was like what he wasn't like so it's likely he goes back to Tarsus at this point but something draws him back to Jerusalem he starts to hear of a mass defection of Jews in the city of Jerusalem he hears that thousands upon thousands ten thousands upon ten thousands of Jews in that city are leaving Judaism entirely and they're becoming part of what he thought was a radical new cult called Christianity and so he's drawn back into Jerusalem. And when he gets there, he starts investigating what Christians stood for. And he has some objections because what Christians say God was like 
contradicted what Paul thought God was like. First of all, Jews built their entire religion on one statement. We believe the Lord our God is one. But then here come the Christians. And the Christians say, yes, we believe in God too. But we believe God has a son. His son is Jesus, and he's also God. And so to to Paul, in his ears... This sounds like blasphemy. We believe God is one. The Christians say there's at least two. God is God and God has a son who's also God. This is unthinkable. This is a cult. This is blasphemy. Furthermore, he had some other issues. The Christians had the audacity. And when I say the Christians, at this point in Jerusalem, this is a mono-ethnic thing. These are people who are ethnically Jews who were raised understanding the same things Paul did who are now grabbing on to this radical new idea. The second thing they had the audacity to claim is that Jesus Christ, a convicted criminal hung on a tree, is God's son. He's the Messiah. He is the way to heaven. And when Paul is hearing this, he's thinking back to Deuteronomy 21 because he knew it inside and out. And in Deuteronomy 21, it says, any man who hangs on a tree, you know that person is cursed. And he's saying, I know this man hung on a tree a few months ago, maybe a couple years ago at this point in the story. I know that man hung on a tree. That is a surefire indicator that he's cursed. How can someone who is cursed be the Messiah? He concluded he can't. You see, God didn't fit in to the way he thought God should be. And so he rejected him. There's still people today who say, I think God ought to be this way. He ought to let anybody into heaven. He should let people decide what gender they are and what marriage should be like. He should let people define themselves. I think God should should not let any bad thing happen to everybody. I think God should make sure everybody gets a fair shake. Whatever you think God is, many people have created God to be other than what he actually is. They've created God to be the way they want God to be. And that God always agrees with them. That God never challenges them. That God never transforms them. He is the way they want him to be. And that's who Paul had. He had a God who was the way he thought he was, and he knew where he stood until he met the God as he actually was, and it knocked him completely to the ground. It lowered him. It humbled him. He also had an objection to what Stephen was preaching. Stephen said, we don't need, as Jews, we don't need the sacrificial system to be right with God anymore. We have Jesus. Jesus' death and resurrection makes us right with God now. Faith in Jesus, not faith in the sacrificial system. And Paul is saying, Wait a minute, that can't be true. That would undermine my entire life and everything I stand for. That would render a lot of this stuff useless. And Paul says, Paul doesn't understand. He's hung up on this old covenant because up to this point, the way they maintained relationship with God was by being faithful to the law, following the rules, honoring the covenants and the sacrifices and, and all of the instructions of the law. And that was what kept the covenant in line. And then here come the Christians and say, no, we've got a new and better covenant. Jesus didn't abolish it. Jesus fulfilled everything in the old covenant. 
We don't have to sacrifice animals anymore because Jesus sacrificed once and for all. We don't have to do all these rituals anymore because Jesus fulfilled all of those things when he went to the cross. And now we are free from that and we have a new, better covenant. We come to God, not through the sacrifice of an animal, but through the resurrected life of Jesus Christ. And Paul said, this is ridiculous. This is blasphemy. And here's the thing. Paul was such an expert in Old Testament history. He knew this is not the first time that cults and false religions had risen up in Jerusalem. And he knew all of the accounts. You can go through the Old Testament and see it. Most of the time in the Old Testament, when a new radical idea came up that was getting people to defect from Judaism, God, through the prophets, ordered holy violence. Round up all the blasphemers and kill them was usually the prescription in the Old Testament. And so it's very likely that the violent rage you see coming out of Paul is him being very purposeful about carrying out what he thinks is an act of righteousness in service to God when actually it's an act of destruction and rebellion indicating he doesn't know God at all. But the first thing he encounters is God. Not the God that he imagines. He encounters the real God of the Bible. For a long period of time, he didn't have a biblical God. You may have believed in God all your life, but you only get converted when you begin to sense you're dealing with a God that isn't just the way you want him to be, but he is exactly the way that he says that he is. And unless you have a God that you allow to tell you things that you don't want to be true, that you're a sinner. Unless you have a God that you will allow to tell you that you can't fix yourself, you don't define yourself, you can't just be who you decide that you are, but you can be everything that he says that you are. Until you have a God that you will allow to tell things that are so tough that you don't want them to be really true, you'll never be changed by a God who will also tell you things that are too good to be true that you're forgiven, that you'll live forever, that he's going to adopt you and make you an heir to everything that's his. I don't need a God who is as I want him to be. I need a God who is exactly who he says that he is. I need a God that is more powerful than my imagination. My heart needs a God that's not created by my heart. My heart is flawed. My heart needs a God who exists independent of my heart. That's what Paul really needed. And I wonder if you serve the God of the Bible and you let him tell you, no, this is the way we budget. This is the way we talk about ourselves. This is the way we treat others. This is the way we prioritize. This is the way that we forgive. This is the way that we surrender. This is the way that we relate. Or do you have a God that you customize? You pick and choose the parts of what he reveals himself to be that don't challenge you and don't transform you that you already agree with and you ration or you dismiss the other parts. If you have that, you are looking for a savior, but not a Lord. You're looking for insurance that you'll go to heaven. You want to sleep at night. You want all the blessings, but you want none of the responsibility of surrender. You want to be in control. It's like the kid who you say, listen, son, here's the 10 things on the to-do list. You need to get it done by six o'clock. He comes to you at six and he says, dad, I did three of the seven. Can I have a cookie? No, but I did three of the seven. 
No, 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 no. You're still trying to run the house. You're still trying to make the rules. You're trying to be in charge of the whole system here. You can't dictate to the authority figure the terms of the relationship. If you really think that's an authority, if you really think Jesus is Lord, the evidence is you stop dictating to him the terms of your relationship. Oh, but pastor, it's just so, you don't understand, it's so hard. You know, we make a lot of money and we have a lot of visit. So? Is he your Lord or isn't he? Well, but I think God understands. No, 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 (laughs) no. You're customizing. But you don't know how bad I've been hurt and how hard it is to forgive. You don't know the wounds that I carry. Is he your Lord or isn't he? Is he the God who is who he says that he is? Or is he the God that you've customized and you've made him soft in areas where you want him to be soft and you've made him rigid? Is he your Lord? Who are you, Lord? He had to have an encounter with the God of the Bible. That's the God I want to know. I want to know the God of the Bible. I want more of the God of the Bible. Why will we settle for so little from God when in fact there is so much? And I'm off track. Number two, a truth encounter. A truth encounter. He has this exchange. Who are you, Lord? He asks. The response, I am Jesus. You understand this is a massive problem for Paul? What did Paul think about Jesus up to that moment? Thank you. You're exactly right. He thinks, I know Jesus of Nazareth. He's dead. I could take you to the tomb that they opened up and then the disciples carried his body away and hid it and spread this whole conspiracy thing that he rose from the dead. Up until this moment, Paul has major theological objections to Jesus. First of all, he thinks he's dead. Second of all, he thinks he's cursed. Third of all, he thinks he's a lunatic. Fourth of all, he does not think that he's God. He's definitely not God's son. And yet, now he's having a very real conversation. Luke gives us every reason to know that he's having a real conversation. There are sounds, there are sights, other people hear the same thing. Luke's trying to make sure this is not a hallucination, this is not a vision. He's having a conversation that's very real and very audible. He has a massive problem here because he does not understand where Jesus come from. He does not understand the Trinity. He does not understand the theology. He doesn't understand the impact on the sacrificial system. He has all these objections. And now Jesus shows up and he just says, I am Jesus. Here's what Jesus doesn't do next. And this is awesome. He does not say, Paul, first of all, I'm Jesus. Now, now slow down, buddy. You've got a lot of questions about me, I know. I've been listening. And um, in order to help you along, let's just, let let me pull up a stool. Let's talk for a minute. Here's an advanced copy of one of Tim Keller's books on the reason for God. It's all the different intellectual proofs for me. So you take that home and and, and think about that. Let's, next, um, I'm going to pull out my little whiteboard. Let me give you a diagram of how the Trinity really works so that you can see that I am one, but there's three. Let me show you that he doesn't do any of that. There's no theology lesson here. He doesn't start saying, you know, Paul, I realize your issues with me are strictly about the relationship between the Old Testament sacrificial system and how my life fulfilled these things. Let me take you on a slow journey, beginning at the book of Genesis up until this very moment right now, and there will be some fill in the blanks and some big ideas, and we'll stop and do some Q&A. None of this. He simply says, I am Jesus. And you know what's beautiful? 
You know why he didn't get into all the other explanations? Because the fact of the matter is, is if he is, and if he exists, and if he was alive, none of the objections mattered. Paul is probably in that moment being like, I don't know how you're alive. I don't know what the implications of this are on the, on the rest of my life. But none of that matters right now. Who cares what my objections are? Because here's the truth. Maybe I'll figure this out later on. Maybe I won't. But I am being encountered with the stubborn, historic, objective reality that the Jesus I thought was dead is alive. That means you did raise from the dead. And if that's true, then everything else I've heard that I thought was wrong is true. And let me tell you, this is not a beautiful, lovely, goosebumpy experience for Paul. He is terrified. But he has an encounter with the truth. How do you know if you're really a Christian? You've encountered God, but you've encountered the truth. That means you're converted by responding to the objective historical fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul had all these objections. Maybe there were answers. He didn't have them, but that didn't matter. He was converted the moment he realized Jesus was raised from the dead. Pastor, you don't understand, I can't really... I'm not ready to take that radical of a step in Christianity. I don't believe in all this because, listen, do you believe Jesus was raised from the dead? That's the only question. Do you believe Jesus was raised from the dead? If so, your objections don't matter. They're fun to talk about. There's some validity in digging through them. But if you believe he raised from the dead, that's the basic part of the belief. Your objections don't matter. You have to drop your conditions. If he was raised from the dead, then he's the Savior and he's the Lord. And our objections don't matter. He is that. If he wasn't raised from the dead, we've got a lot of other problems. But if you don't believe he was raised from the dead, if you say, I realize this is everybody's claim, but I just don't believe it. Okay, give me a, historical, give me a historically plausible explanation for how the church grew and survived. How come all these people were willing, who, who claimed that they saw him, were willing to go to death even, and all they had to do was recant? You don't go, if you're in a hoax, you know you're in a hoax. If you're perpetuating a conspiracy, you know it's wrong. You're saying these people chose death rather than to come clean, knowing that they died for a lie? That's not what people do. Explain that to me. Explain to me how the church grew. He had a truth encounter. You know, interestingly, an interesting thread you can study through here. I've got to close. If you go, I think it's Galatians 4. And please fact check me if this is not the chapter. I think it's Galatians 4. Paul writes, affirming the Galatian church, he says, you've always been very compassionate and supportive, even during my illness. And a couple sentences later, he's like, I can testify you would have been willing to take out your own eyes and give them to me if you were able. In another place, there's towards the end of his letter, he says, I, Paul, write using my own hand. Do you notice the large letters I'm writing? Now, I, I'm not going to make a doctrine out of this because there's a little bit of connecting of the dots here. But there is a, an idea among people who have really studied his life closely that Paul's sight 
and his eyes gave him trouble even after that experience. That later on in life, he was still struggling and the people knew that his eyesight was tough. In fact, they say, listen, if we could give you our, our eyes instead of yours, we'd switch with you. And, you know, maybe he was writing big letters. What do I say? This moment transformed his life forever. An encounter with God. An encounter with the truth. And the last encounter he has is a love encounter. And you're like, where do you see love in this passage? Who are you, sir? I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now, let me try. I need to make you see how strange this exchange is if you don't see it already. First question, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I'm the one you're persecuting. And you got to hold on for a second. If you're Saul in that moment, you'd be like, hold on, bright light. Um, whoever you are, I'm not, I'm not persecuting you. I'm on my way to persecute them. I'm not picking on you. I would not pick a fight with someone as bright as you are. I'm on my way to pick on them. But he says, you're persecuting me. Why are you persecuting me? I'm the one you're persecuting. And something clicks in Paul's mind that shaped his writing through the rest of his life. He realizes this. I'm converted by encountering God's intimate love that forms a radical new union between he and me. Here's what God is saying. Those are my children. They are in me. I am in them. What you do to them, you do to me. And I don't know about you and your kids, but if you mess with my boys, you mess with me, and even more so, you mess with mama. Jesus is saying this to Paul and to us. One, if I am in Christ, he is so in me that whatever people do to me, he treats that as though you're doing it to him. And he's saying to Paul right away, you can't mess with my kids. You, you went to arrest them, now I'm arresting you. You went to lay hold of them, now I'm laying hold of you. Checkmate, right? Who's in charge here? I want you to know that if you're in Christ, he keeps good record of your wrongs so you don't have to. The people who do you wrong, your dad knows. I would also say this, if right now you're in a little bit of a spat with another Christian, you may want to rethink that. If there's a believer in your life that you, you're not feeling too good about and you are contributing to the dysfunction of the relationship with your own attitude and behavior, I would encourage you to rethink that. Pursue forgiveness. Pursue grace. Don't mess with God's kids. But it says something even deeper. Why, you know, why did Jesus take this so personally? Paul's saying, I'm on my way to persecute them, not you, and then it clicks. Jesus is saying something that seared itself in the center of Paul's consciousness that converted. Jesus is saying, I have such an intimate union with my people that whatever is true of them is true of me. And whatever is true of me is true of them. The love between us is so intimate that they are in me. I am in them. We are in union. And this love encounter becomes the basis for everything Paul wrote the rest of his life. The more he thought about it, the more, it proce the more he processed it, the more it converted. Paul's the one who tells us we're part of a body. Christ in you, the hope of glory. We are in him. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. He started to understand this. What God is showing him is that you know, God, when he views 
his, his children, when he views Christians, he, 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 treats, he treats us as though it's his own son in us. It means to be in such union with him that when Jesus, when Jesus died for us on the cross, if we're in union with him, God views that as though our life was laid on top of his. God treats us as if we had paid the penalty for our sins, just like Jesus did. When Jesus is raised to a place of honor, God treats us as if we had accomplished everything Jesus had accomplished. It's as though God takes every medal and trophy off of his son and he puts it on our neck and he treats us that way. It's like an adopted child. You know, our missionaries who were here the other week, Kevin and Noel, have two boys that they adopted, adopted them very young. They were in the, the, the foster care system in the city of Milwaukee. Those boys had no income. They had no net worth. They had no bank account. They had no address. And they didn't have the power and the ability to provide for themselves any of those things. I want you to know that the exact second that those adoptions were finalized, those boys got a new name, they got a new net worth, they got a new address, they got a new home, they got new benefits, they got a new family, and they had no ability to provide anything for themselves. Just the fact that they were adopted into that family, all because of the effort of the parents and nothing because of the effort of the kids. And I want to tell you something. The moment that those boys became Millers, they didn't start behaving perfectly right away. They didn't know how to act even like a Miller from day one. But they were eligible to receive all of the inheritance because, because of the parents, because of the dad, because of the mom. I want you to know that the moment that you put your faith in Jesus Christ, the moment you repent to him, he is in you. You are in him. You have a new name. You have a new inheritance. You have a new home. It's all yours. It's all yours. Not because of anything you've done, because you're saying, well, pastor, that's not fair. I don't deserve that. I should get what I deserve. You don't want what you deserve, and neither do I. I don't know about you. I'll take what I don't deserve, and that is new life. That is heaven. That is a new body. That is forgiveness. That is a new identity. That is a purpose. That is a hope, and that's what Paul experienced, and that's what really converted him. That's how you know if you're truly a Christian. Have you had an encounter with the real God of the Bible? Have you had an encounter with the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Have you experienced the love of Jesus Christ in you and through you that brings you into relationship with God, that brings you into relationship with a new family. That's the story of Saul's conversion. That's what changed him. It wasn't mastering theology. It wasn't taking up a new, a new group of laws or things. The laws weren't going to save him. It was a radical relationship with Jesus Christ. Do you know God like that? Can I encourage you to exchange religion and performance for relationship today? Can I encourage you, if you've not thought about where you go when you die, if you've not thought at all about where you stand with God, can I plead with you to think about that before you leave here this morning? Don't leave here without unresolved. There is salvation for you. There is forgiveness for you. There is new life for you. We bring our simple faith, we bring our repentance, and we confess he is our Savior and he is our Lord. We lower ourselves to the ground, as it were, and we say, we, we lower ourselves and say, God, the way that we're living, we leave it behind and we want to live your way. That's available for you. 
for those of us who have already said, I have experienced these things. I want to challenge you to live a more deeply converted life, a more deeply converted life. Continue to think and process about the goodness of God and allow those things to change you as you continue to grow in him. Worship team, will you come and join me on the platform? I want to pray. I want to pray over you today. Heavenly Father, we do not want to embody the characteristics of Paul before he met you. We do not want to be a group of people who have no passion in our prayer, who have a bunch of knowledge and information, but no transformation who can't muster up any type of genuine love and affection for you and your kingdom, who are just people who have embraced religion because we belong to a church and we serve and we write some checks and we read our Bible and we're disciplined in all of the religious things, but there is no personal conversion and transformation. We do not want to embody that part of Paul's life. We do not want to simply be a group of people who get together and practice religion, polish our resumes, and compare ourselves to one another to see whether we're better or less deserving of your grace than someone else. No, we lower ourselves beneath the glow and the glare of the brilliance of who you are, God. And I ask in this moment right now, Holy Spirit, you heighten the sense of conviction in every heart under the sound of my voice that you expose the hidden and the secret sins that you see that we think you don't, that you reveal all of the attitudes and the emotions and the hang-ups and the, and, the, and, and the grudges and the bitterness and the unkindness that we have in our hearts towards people, that you make us very aware of that right now. Let us feel the discomfort of sin in our heart. And at the same time, draw us by your loving kindness to your son and see that the true hope for redemption is not in self-discipline. It is in surrender to Jesus Christ. You are God. And in this quiet, sacred moment right now, if you know you are not in right relationship with God, I want to invite you to repentance. I want to invite you to place your faith in Jesus. Not Jesus and good behavior. Not Jesus and good results. Not Jesus and a bunch of blessings. Just Jesus. He is the way. And I invite you to consider a prayer prayer that says, Jesus, I am a sinner, and I know it, and you know it. There is much in me that is broken, and that is unacceptable to you, and I am very aware of that. It's too much for me to bear. However, I put my faith in you, Jesus. You are the only one who can redeem me, who can forgive me, who can clean me, who can restore me, and who can transform me. I want to be converted by the power of you, Jesus. And so I confess my faith in you, that you're God's son, that you died on the cross, and that you rose from the grave. You are my substitute. And I believe by faith that your word tells me God accepted your payment on my behalf and that your resume can now be exchanged for mine if I'm willing to surrender to you. And so today I surrender.
I give up control. I give over the reins of my life to you. I repent for my sin and I receive forgiveness and invite you to come and live in me. Transform me and change me in your name I pray.